and welcome back to the Chiron Podcast, where our goal is to have conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. We're a few episodes into a series discussing what I call the satanic impulse, which is the desire to be God. After a brief introduction from Nietzsche, we've spent some time looking at the character of Satan, especially as he is presented in Milton's Paradise Lost. And today we're going to start with him again before moving towards a discussion about an almost completely forgotten, but an incredibly prevalent sin, the medieval sin of Acedia. But before we do that, I thought today it might be worth addressing the question of religion. See, all this talk about Satan and the desire to be God, it may give the appearance that this podcast, Chiron, is a religious podcast, or at least that it's designed for religious or perhaps specifically Christian people. But I want to say from the outset that this is not the case. See, in all of these discussions that we're going to be having, we'll quite purposefully be taking philosophical and literary perspectives on the historical questions that we pose. And just by default, this is really often going to mean that we enter into theological topics. Because the truth is that philosophy, history, and literature they're consistently tied up with and interwoven with theology. You see, the history of ideas quite literally is the history of theological ideas, as much as it's anything else. And so this present topic, what we're talking about, humanity's desire to be God, it's certainly, understandably, I can see, a topic that seems very theological. And in many ways, it is theological. But it's not only that. So what does this have to offer someone who doesn't believe in God? What does all of this talk about Satan mean for someone who doesn't even believe in Satan? Well, I'd like to invite you to go beyond the well-worn paths of dogma and ideology that are so present today and to do something, or at least try to do something, that we've become pretty bad at in recent decades. And that is to entertain thoughts and ideas with which you may not immediately agree or associate. So let's think of it like this. If Satan doesn't exist, does it really make any big difference to the points that we've established so far? What we're talking about here is the satanic impulse as it manifests in us, in humans. Not just or even particularly how it manifests in Satan. And as such, it doesn't really matter whether or not Satan actually exists or not. We exist, and my argument is it exists in us. And we could perhaps just call it pride, and there wouldn't be as much cognitive dissonance for listeners who don't believe in any kind of literal devil. And this is one of the reasons that we're looking at him from a literary and historical perspective. I'm interested in what cultural histories can tell us about ourselves, and as such, the mechanisms that are at work in the world today. Satan is a part of cultural history, and as such, Satan doesn't need to exist for the satanic impulse to exist. And at this point, it is certainly worth mentioning that Satan, exactly as he's pictured and rendered in Paradise Lost, I don't believe in that either. I don't believe in that picture of Satan either. The point is not whether or not it's factually accurate. The point is whether it's true. Now, that might sound quite confusing to say the point is not whether or not it's factually accurate, the point is whether it's true. And that's because our modern scientific, reductionist, anti-metaphysical approach to life has conflated these two things. Empirical facts 
and truth. But the truth can be, and in fact a lot of the time is, bigger than facts. The truth can be bigger than facts. And literature is a great example of this. Great literature can tell us more about ourselves than any empirical study, say a medical diagnosis or even a DNA test. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a couple of authors have said very similar things. Neil Gaiman, author of American Gods, The Sandman and Stardust, amongst others, he once said this in reference to Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. He said, fiction is a lie that tells us true things over and over. Ralph Waldo Emerson is purported to have said that fiction reveals truth that reality obscures. And one of my favourite lines from one of, if not my favourite movie ever, is that artists use lies to tell the truth. So you see, it doesn't actually matter that Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, precisely as rendered in Shakespeare's tragedy, never actually existed. Because he has. In fact, he does. He exists in me every time I read the play. He has existed in the millions of people who have been witness to his interrogations of meaning and purpose throughout centuries. In some ways, you could say he's therefore more real than some actual historical Prince of Denmark who may or may not have existed. Or in the least, if not Hamlet, at least the questions and the emotional state of Hamlet is more real as it has been experienced by people every day over the last 400 years and will arguably continue to be so forever on. Now, you might have experienced something like this from watching a really well-made movie or reading a piece of classic literature or even from listening to a favourite piece of music. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, for example, in the ways that it aligns to and embraces the nature of reality, is in many ways more true than a contemporary mass-produced piece of young adult fiction which wants to rewrite reality to fit its own ideals. See, good fiction tells us the truth. It tells us truths about ourselves deeper and more profound than we may have ever been able to recognise otherwise. C.S. Lewis said that one of the reasons to write Narnia was in the attempt to steal past the watchful dragons that we have so often got standing guard at the gates of our minds committed to pre-existing ideologies that prohibit any new thoughts from gaining traction. And so, we return to this topic. Hopefully you might see now that it doesn't really matter whether you believe in God or the devil, or if you do, what your specific beliefs about them are. Regardless of whether there is a God or not, it doesn't change the impulsive desire for control that emerges within humanity. Psychologically, or symbolically, or culturally, call it what you will, the desire to be God, the felt need to live without limitations and to be able to determine our own path, our own identity, even our own reality, exists within us. And you don't need to believe in Satan for the illustrations throughout literature to demonstrate the genesis of this desire as well as its results. So all of that to say that no, this podcast is not a religious podcast. It's not designed specifically for religious people. If it helps to think of these ideas as merely metaphors or symbols in literature, then think of them as that. Because we're now going to return to symbols, images, which are true despite being fiction. And it's a profound image 
an image that has stuck with me, lodged in my mind, lodged in my subconscious, since the very first time that I came across it, that we're going to be talking about today. It's the scene that Dante Alighieri and his guide, the Roman poet Virgil, are presented with when they reach the very centre at the very bottom of hell in Dante's Inferno. Now, the Inferno is one of three books that comprise Dante's Divine Comedy, which tells of Dante's own journey through hell, and then purgatory, and finally, paradise. Really quickly, because this is so amazing, I've got to tell you about the structure of the poem. It's written in something called terza rima, which means little chunks of three lines at a time with a certain rhyme scheme. These chunks, or stanzas, are called tercets, and the rhyme scheme is interlocking. It connects each tercet to the next. Now, if you've always hated poetry ever since school, me too. And I would understand if right now when I started talking about tercets and rhyme schemes and stanzas, if you're like, ah, fast forward, can I get past this? And when I say me, me too, I didn't really like poetry in school, but I absolutely do now. I really didn't appreciate it until I took some time and had some good teaching on it. And then all of a sudden, the world of poetry blew open my mind. And now I can't get enough of it. So, before you zone out, permit me for a moment to remind you of your school days through the old discussion of rhyme scheme. You might remember that a rhyme scheme in a poem is often denoted through letters like this A, B, A, B, where the A's rhyme and the B's rhyme. So, I saw a cat sitting in a tree, it was very fat, looking at me, is an A, B, A, B rhyme scheme. The at sound at the end of cat and fat is the A, and the E sound at the end of tree and me is the B. Makes sense, easy, I know, why am I bothering to teach you this? Well, terza rima works by utilising the following rhyme scheme. A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, D, E, D, E, F, E, etc. In other words, three line stanzas where the sound at the end of the second line becomes the sound rhymed with in the first and third lines of the next stanza. If it sounds confusing, well, it kind of is, or at least it's a very difficult rhyme scheme to write in, especially when we add that Dante kept exactly the same meter in every line. That's the same rhythm. There are 11 syllables in each line. If you think it sounds easy, try it out sometime. This guy was the master. Now, 11 syllables per line and three lines per stanza. That's 33 lines per stanza. So not only do we have the number three represented as the amount of lines per stanza, but it's also duplicated again by the amount of syllables. And let's not forget that there are three books in the Divine Comedy. And here's the kicker. Each one of these books is divided into cantos, which are like chapters. How many cantos per book, I hear you ask? Why, 33, of course. So a poem consisting of three books of 33 cantos consisting of three line stanzas, all consisting of 33 syllables with an interlocking rhyme scheme. Again, if you're not amazed at this, give it a crack for yourself. So why is there this obsession with the number three? Well, of course, it's symbolic. Dante's writing about a journey into the afterlife as a Christian, and therefore he wants to represent the unity of the Holy Trinity, and he uses it as the governing structure of his poem. The governing structure of reality itself, Father, Spirit, Son, or as G.K. Chesterton recognised, amongst many others, 
father, mother, child, this overarching structure of reality is, of course, the best structure that Dante chooses for his incredible epic. But enough on structure, because we could probably go on about it forever. What is this poem about? Well, for today, we're going to take a whirlwind tour through hell and not even mention paradise and purgatory. Our focus at the moment, as you're aware, is the satanic impulse. And so it makes sense that we stay in Inferno. Dante begins his story with an introductory canto, which, I should mention, takes the 99 cantos of Inferno, Purgatory and Paradise to a very complete and unified 100. As the canto opens, he tells us that he was in the middle of the journey of life when he came to himself in a dark wood where the direct way was lost. He soon meets Virgil, the Roman poet who wrote the Aeneid, and Dante's literary hero whom he refers to as a teacher and a guide. Virgil lets him know that he's been tasked by God to accompany Dante through hell, explaining what he sees as he goes. Dante and Virgil then move down the layers or the circles of hell. Now there are heaps of cool details in here that we will undoubtedly return to in later episodes of the Chiron podcast. But for now, let's fast forward to the bottom. After a long and arduous journey, during which Dante has been confronted with innumerable horrors and spoken to many of the lost souls about their punishment, it becomes clear that a certain form of punishment is allocated for each sin. Now, this is a concept called contrapasso, which means to suffer the opposite. Each sin is punished in a form directly related to the nature of the sin itself. So, for example, two lovers guilty of the sin of lust are tossed violently around in a physical whirlwind, thrown together forever. Those guilty of suicide have their souls stuck in trees, upon the branches of which hang their bodies, always in their sight, but never achievable for them to actually reach and to inhabit again. The avaricious, those guilty of greed, are forced to constantly push around heavy weights, symbolic of the weight of wealth that they obsessed over while alive. So, we can see that a rough approximation of what is happening in Dante's idea of hell is that people are given what they want. Their sin was wanting something, loving something inordinately, and therefore their punishment is that they get it, all of it, and nothing but it. It demonstrates the idea that we don't really know what is good for us, and thus in hell, God simply says, fine, have it your way. There is so much more to speak of here, and we absolutely will at other times. But for now, we join Virgil and Dante at the bottom of the inferno. Not in, as one might expect, a lake of fire, but rather a frozen river. As they walk along the surface of the frozen river Cocytus, avoiding the conscious and frozen bodies of sinners jutting out at different places, Dante starts to feel an increasingly powerful wind coming towards him. Soon the river opens out into a vast lake. In the centre of the lake, half submerged in the frozen water, is the gigantic figure of Satan. He has three faces on his head, one head but three faces, each looking in different directions, and each one of these faces is chewing a different doomed sinner. Brutus, Cassius, and Judas Iscariot. The lake is the bottom, the fourth ring of the ninth circle of hell. And this ring is called Judeca, which is named after Judas himself. 
In this ring is reserved the worst punishments for the worst sinners. According to Dante, those are the people who have betrayed their benefactors. And thus, Satan is eternally chewing up in his mouths the worst traitors to benefactors in history. Brutus and Cassius, the leaders of the assassination of Julius Caesar, are chewed with their upper bodies hanging out, while Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus Christ, is chewed head first, his body and head ground and destroyed while remaining conscious for all eternity. But of course Judas, while the chief traitor amongst all humans, is not the chief traitor amongst all beings. That place is reserved for Satan himself. And here we see that Satan is not, as some contemporary cartoonish depictions would have it, the Lord of Hell, reveling in the punishment of humans. He is not, as Milton depicted him, in the slightest bit brave, heroic, or charismatic. He too is punished. He too, like everybody else down there, is frozen in the lake. And he can do nothing but chew his victims and constantly beat his giant bat-like wings in the attempt to break free of his captivity and punishment. But here, at this moment, Dante realises where this icy cold wind that he's been feeling on the river Cocytus is coming from. The wind is from Satan's wings, beating constantly. And it is this very wind which keeps the lake frozen. Satan, in his desire for freedom, is keeping himself enslaved. If he would only stop fighting, if only he would stop resisting the natural hierarchy of the world, he would, in fact, be free. If he would just stop beating his wings, he would stop creating this freezing wind which would keep the lake frozen. But it is no longer in his nature. He has fought against the order of reality, and he continues to fight. Remember the quote from Milton, He thought to bring with him a mind not to be changed by place or time. He refuses to bend the knee, despite that choice bringing him pain and suffering and torment and despair. And here we see the truth in the statement made by Abdiel in Paradise Lost, when he told Satan that he is thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. Satan is kept captive to and by himself. And it is his obsession with freedom that enslaves him. It's the ultimate contrapasso. The sin is the consequence. The crime is the punishment. Okay, book recommendation time and no surprises here. You've got to have a read of Dante's Divine Comedy. There is a really easy to understand translation online at poetryintranslation.com. It's even got pictures, really cool old pictures by the incredible 19th century French artist Gustave Doré. But now, now that we've established this incredible figure of Satan beating his wings in the attempt at freedom but constantly keeping himself enslaved through that very attempt itself, now we can leave this picture for a moment as we investigate the mechanisms at work in this really interesting and perplexing even phenomenon that a person's desire for freedom would itself keep them captive. Remember, Satan had that famous line in Paradise Lost, here at least we shall be free. And we ask the question, what kind of freedom is that? And the lens through which we're going to look at this is an old sin. It's a forgotten sin called acedia. 
Now, this is a Greek word, and actually, if I'm going to be really authentic, it should probably be pronounced Achadia, but it's spelled A-C-E-D-I-A, and so I'm going to refer to it as Acedia here in this podcast, and you'll hear it referred to as Acedia around the place as well, if you ever hear anyone ever talk about it, and sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Achadia. Acedia is one of my favorite topics of all time, and there is no way that I'll be able to stop at just one episode about it. It's absolutely going to recur multiple times. It will undoubtedly pop up again and again throughout this series because it really is connected deeply into the satanic impulse. Now, the thing about an idea as old as Acedia is that over time, it's been defined variously in a bunch of different ways. And because it's mostly a forgotten sin, we'll have to look into its history a little bit in order to try to make sense of it. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of the seven deadly sins, and maybe you've seen that incredible David Fincher movie, Seven in which, actually, Dante's Divine Comedy is, of course, referenced. And if you have seen that movie, you might have wondered, as I did when I first found out about the seven deadly sins, why, of all things, sloth was one of them. You've got pride, greed, envy, wrath, gluttony, lust, and sloth. I mean, sure, laziness is bad, but it seems a bit intense to put it in that list with the rest of those sins, right? But the truth is, Laziness is not at all a good definition of sloth. Sloth, in fact, comes from the old sin of Acedia. At some point in time, around the late medieval period, Acedia started to and gradually transformed into sloth. And then sloth, pretty soon, transformed into indolence and basic laziness. In fact, the evolution of these ideas is really interesting and itself has profound things to teach us about the world that we live in today. So we're going to spend an episode tracking this evolution at a later time. But for now, it's important to know that while sloth doesn't mean much more to us now than sitting on the couch, flicking through our phone, eating Cheetos, it comes from a much richer and a much more destructive foundation. The best book that I've read on Acedia, and one that quite literally changed my life, is called Acedia and Its Discontents by R.J. Snell. His words are far better than mine, and he often cites a variety of other people, including Charles Taylor, uh, Jean-Charles Nolte, and Thomas Aquinas, as he stitches together the most illustrative and evocative definitions of Acedia. The following is from his book. Modern freedom resulted when older moral horizons were uprooted, when liberation from the captivity of divine order was attained. Free, yes but the world seems to have lost its story and we suffer a sense of malaise and emptiness. As Charles Taylor explains in A Secular Age, our freedom is disembedded from reality with a resulting terrible flatness in the everyday, the utter flatness, emptiness of the ordinary. Our freedom came at a cost, the loss of anything worth living for, and the only remainder is a centering on the self. And since the world is devoid of thickness, everything becomes a plaything, something to tame, toy with, lead about on a leash, and discard when we have drained its temporary pleasure. Ooh, a bit intense. And there is a lot to take in there. But you might have heard at the beginning that this situation is the result of a desire for freedom. He starts by talking about modern freedom. And by that, Snell means the modern conception of freedom. So the kind of freedom that is pursued and believed in and cared about. In fact, 
the very way that we define freedom in our modern age. This kind of freedom came from uprooting older moral horizons. Now, why do we need to uproot old moral horizons? It's because these moral horizons, this morality, is a limitation upon us. It tells us what we can and cannot do, or better, what we should and should not do. And this is a serious issue for the modern conception of freedom, because the belief is that while any limitation exists, any law or precept which we ourselves do not assent to, or even that we ourselves did not personally create, while any of these laws or limitations exist, we are not truly free. Because we're bound by it. We're bound by a law not of our choosing, not of our making. This is why Snell says that this sense of freedom came from uprooting moral horizons. We had to do away with morality in order to be free in this sense of the word free. He continues by saying that we needed to be liberated from the captivity of divine order. And here is the connection to God. See, it's not only morality which is an unwanted limitation. It's the idea of any kind of divine order, an order of things instantiated by God. In fact, any order not determined by us, and here I don't even mean us as a species or as a culture or even as a society, but necessarily you can see it has to be us as individuals. Any order not created by us is by definition a limitation, and therefore we are not free, at least not according to this modern conception of freedom. But listen to what he says next. One of my favorite lines. Free, yes, but the world seems to have lost its story. The world has lost its story. You see, stories actually require limitations. They require order. Meaning requires rules. Think of any organized team sport. The rules aren't an inconvenience to the game. They are the game. And while you may at first think that zero, zero rules might be a lot of fun, and then you think about it a little bit more and you go, okay, well, maybe zero rules is going to result in a lot of chaos, it's far more likely that it would result in complete nothingness, emptiness. You see, rules determine even the location of a game, the limits of the field, the number of players, the amount of time played, and even the agreed-upon day to play. In some way, and hopefully you can see my meaning here, all of these are limitations. No rules doesn't necessarily mean chaos. It means emptiness. See, if I decide to play a game with a friend, I instantly begin by building limitations around it. We'll meet here on this day at this time. We'll play for this long. These will be the goals of the game and these will be the processes to achieve those goals. Now, if I don't want any limitations at all, if I don't want any of these limitations, I don't even communicate with my friend to begin with. There is nothing to communicate except perhaps, let's play a game. And after that statement is said, if we're both obsessed with freedom above all else, there is nothing else to say. Because we will automatically be putting limitations upon ourselves, making commitments to each other and to the order of the game that we're planning on playing. 
meaning requires limitations. And thus, should we be surprised in a world that has denounced limitations that we have found ourselves wandering in isolated meaninglessness? I would argue that we shouldn't. R.J. Snell continues, quoting Charles Taylor in A Secular Age, Our freedom is disembedded from reality. And you see, you can't actually have this kind of freedom in reality. You actually need to reject reality in order to assert this level of freedom. Our freedom is disembedded from reality with the resulting terrible flatness in the everyday, the utter flatness, emptiness of the ordinary. See, this is the flatness and emptiness of a life without any commitments and without any limitations. He concludes by saying that our freedom came at a cost, the loss of anything worth living for, and the only remainder is a centering on the self. And since the world is devoid of thickness, everything becomes a plaything, something to tame, toy with, lead about on a leash, and discard when we have drained its temporary pleasure. This is the definition of acedia a rejection of limitations. And look at what it results in. Emptiness. Meaninglessness. In fact, it goes beyond that. Its result is despair. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher with whom we'll spend quite a bit more time in a few episodes, he called Acedia the despairing refusal to be oneself. What a great way to define it. Because now, let's return to that image of Satan in the frozen river Cocytus. This is, this image is indeed a despairing refusal to be himself. Satan's created self, his self that exists and existed within the order and limitation of God's creation, is an angelic being, transcendent, powerful, majestic, beautiful. But Satan has refused this. He's refused God's order because it was not his order, refused heaven because it was not his heaven, and thus he has refused himself. He is not himself. In rejecting God's order, he rejected his true self. And now we see, instead of a transcendent, powerful, majestic, beautiful being, rather a degraded, impotent, lowly horror. And he is in despair. See, as he sits there flapping his wings, chewing these corpses, these live conscious beings for all eternity, mingled with the blood of these three traders in his three mouths is the ever-constant, ever-flowing stream of tears that pour forth from Satan's eyes. The tears that he cries as he contemplates and experiences his despair. Yet all the while, never giving up, never stopping fighting the order and limitations that naturally exist. Jean-Charles Nolte, who's another author referenced in R.J. Snell's book, puts it really powerfully and really simply. Acedia, he says, is a profound withdrawal into self. The desire to save one's freedom at any price reveals in reality a deeper enslavement to the self. Well, that has been our introduction to Acedia. 
And as I said, there's plenty more to talk about when it comes to this old idea, but that's where we're going to leave it for now. Next week, we're going to circle back to a statement I made a little bit earlier in this episode. You might remember that I said, according to the modern conception of freedom, while any limitation exists, we're not free. Now, this idea of any limitation at all leads us down some really interesting paths, and one of them takes us out of the past, out of the poetry of Dante and Milton, and locates us directly into the here and now of the 21st century. Because one of our greatest limitations, according to some, is our physicality itself, our very biology. So tune in next week as we discuss the hideous strength of transhumanism's push for scientific transcendence, here on Chiron, conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. Mm-hmm.